Hello and welcome to Right Cared Baptist. Today, Henry and I will be talking to Jillian Foster and Alex Questenberry about monoclonal antibody therapies, as well as we're going to give an update on the COVID-19 vaccine. Jillian and Alex, welcome to the program. Jillian has been on several times in the past, and all of our listeners should know her. But Alex, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background? Certainly. Hi. Good Good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Uh, my name is Alex Questenberry. I'm the Director of Pharmacy for the Baptist Cancer Center, as well as the uh, Baptist Clinical Research um, Program. And, uh, and I do oversee outpatient infusions, and as well as these outpatient infusions of the, uh, these two new products. Thanks, Alex. Before we dive into monoclonal antibody therapies, Jillian, can you give us an update on the COVID-19 vaccine and rollout plan? So we are recording this podcast episode the week of December 1st, but it'll actually come out the week of December 10th. And on December 10th is when the FDA will be reviewing the Pfizer vaccine. So can we just provide our listeners with a little bit of an update of, of what to expect in the coming weeks? So we've talked before about the Operation Warp Speed project. And so what that project has allowed to occur is our um, federal funding has allowed the manufacturers to um, begin manufacturing the vaccine. They have been doing that for some time. So there are um, doses ready and shipping and transportation and receiving processes in place so that when the FDA meets on December 10th to review the Pfizer data, um, we are told within 24 hours of that meeting, if all is approved, that vaccine distribution should occur. And um, we've continued to hear and know that the very first phase will be um, um, to offer the vaccine to healthcare workers across the nation, um, long-term care employees and residents will also be very important in that very first phase. Um, and we're encouraged that um, the second phase and so on would happen just right behind that. So it really um, does feel that we will have a vaccine or two before Christmas. Jillian, let me ask a quick question about healthcare providers. It, it seems to be the directive is addressing more of the acute care provider community and not the ambulatory care provider community, even though many of our clinics do see COVID patients uh, early on in their in their illness. Have you gotten, have you heard anything about uh, perhaps a prioritization of vaccines that might address the concerns that many of our ambulatory clinics have? Yeah, and I think early on when we were really unsure of the vaccine supply, um, maybe there was a thought that um, employees working in inpatient care, COVID zones, 24-7 with COVID-19 positive patients, maybe there would only be enough supply for those at the very beginning. You know, the way the Pfizer vaccine is packaged, it's packaged in trays of 975 doses, and they're really wanting to keep the trays together and not split trays. Um, so that, that's really going to, I think, work out in our favor where many of our facilities will get those large um, segments of doses. And at Baptist, we are really hopeful to be able to offer that to our, all of our direct patient care employees there in the very early phases. So as the details come together over the next few weeks, I guess our final prioritization plan will come about. But um, direct patient care 
in hospitals, EDs, primary care and urgent care, testing facilities, testing sites, long-term care continue to be at the top of the list. And one last question before we before we get into the antibody um, discussion. So uh, one of these products will be packed in dry ice, and dry ice has with that some handling precautions. Are we taking steps then to address any of those safety concerns that are associated with dry ice handling? Yes. Yeah. Um, we have sent out a system guideline around um, handling of the dry ice, which includes the PPE to use, like the gloves, the safety goggles, um, how to not reach into without those protective items on, not to reach into the coolers or even the ultra-low freezers. Um, that will be a new process for our employees. Um, we even have learned that with the Pfizer vaccine, um, the Operation Warp Speed project will send some of those items as well. Now, most of our facilities have been planning to have those items already, um, but it'll be nice that those Pfizer vaccines um, will come with some of that as well. That, that's good to know. So Pfizer is also planning to, and it is a Pfizer vaccine that's stored at that, that super, super low temp at minus 70 degrees centigrade, correct? Correct. And, and so Pfizer then is planning to have as part of their, their kitting together, I think they call them kitting factories, uh, they're planning then to include some of that protective equipment, may not meet all of our needs, but you feel like we've got enough additional gloves, masks, et cetera, to, to protect our, our frontline folks who'll be, who'll be uh, working with the vaccine. Yes, yes, lots of players in the distribution process, Pfizer and Moderna being the vaccine manufacturers. McKesson is going to be the wholesaler uh, where at least the Moderna vaccine will transfer through. McKesson was also contracted to prepare the vaccine kits that will include the supplies needed, some of the PPE, the diluent. Then um, the Operation Warp Speed project will fund um, the dry ice and the PPE that comes with it. And then, of course, we have our transportation team with FedEx and UPS that will be vital in that distribution process as well. One last question related to the distribution process. So if the FDA approves it on December 10th or, or a couple days after, then my understanding is that FedEx and the other distributors will, will start moving it to the hospitals. Once it reaches the hospitals, what can our providers expect as far as um, timeline of, of further rollout within the hospital? Yes, yeah, so for that first phase that's mostly employees, our system employee health teams have been working to develop um, plans for um, letting our employees get scheduled on the days where they could receive the vaccine. We have some education plan for our employees to inform them about the COVID-19 vaccine so they can make an informed decision um, to accept it. And um, those employee health teams will schedule the first dose. Um, they will help our employees get their second dose scheduled. Um, and so, again, based on supply, we will just work as, as quickly as we can through all of our employee areas and categories to offer the vaccine. Patients will very quickly be in that second phase, um, but I know it's really important um, per the CDC's guidance um, to get that offered to our employees as quickly as possible. Thank you so much for that information. Alex, within the last few weeks, the FDA has granted EUA for two monoclonal antibody therapies, bamlanivimab from Eli Lilly and the combination therapy cassirivimab and imdevimab from Regeneron.
Tell us a little bit about monoclonal antibody therapies and the data that support their use in COVID-19 patients. Yes, yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah, exciting times in, in the past month and in, in November. Uh, early in November, uh, we received the release of the FDA emergency use authorization for Eli Lilly's uh, bamlanivimab product, uh, and, and we were fortunate enough to also learn of, of the uh, effectiveness and safety with a, a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine that was released late in, in October, uh, October 28th of this year. Uh, looking at that study, it was a, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial um, in 467 patients who received uh, either uh, bamlanivimab in multiple dosages or uh, placebo. And, and really with that, you know, this is a brand new monoclonal antibody that specifically targets the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus and, and can bind to that virus and prevent it from entering the host target cells. This trial really demonstrated the, the ability to bamlanivimab to, to do three things. Reduce the patient's total viral load, which it did significantly show that, that reduction. Uh, also reduce the, the total uh, viral symptom severity uh, for these patients. And then last and probably most importantly for us too, it, it, it showed also to keep patients out of the hospital. So bamlanivimab versus placebo, um, placebo patients were hospitalized at a rate of 6.3% versus bamlanivimab, which was 1.6%. Uh, so so great, uh, great results there, exciting results. Uh, and then also later on last month, we, we learned of the Regeneron pro uh, combination product, uh, Kesadrivimab and uh, Indevimab. Those have, was, was released uh, later in, in November on uh, November, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, November 21st. And uh, they unfortunately don't have a peer-reviewed publication, but initial press re releases do show uh, similar noted viral reductions and uh, the ability of reductions in hospital admissions. That's right. And the Regeneron product, that's the product that President Trump received when he was hospitalized. Is that correct? Yeah, yes, sir. That, that, that is correct. And you mentioned this a little bit, but the population of patients that these drugs are intended for are outpatients. Is that correct? Because we're, we're trying to prevent hospitalizations. You're absolutely right. Again, these, these patients, um, the appropriate patients are those, really those high-risk patients who may undergo hospitalization that have a positive uh, COVID-19 test result. Uh, another important thing that it has to be early in their their disease, so so the symptoms have to be occurred within the past 10 days, and uh, they they define high risk patients as those uh, with with a high body mass index greater than 35, uh, those with chronic kidney disease, uh, patients with diabetes, patients uh, on uh, some form of immunosuppressive treatment, or in an immunosuppressive disease. Uh, those that are greater than 65 years of age. And then they, they offer some caveats for those that are in that 55 to 65 year um, age range, but those patients have to have cardiovascular disease, hypertension, uh, COPD, or any other chronic respiratory disease. Now, not only you know, are, are we treating those, those adult patients, but really a, a nice benefit too is that pediatric patients can also be included. And within this EUA, so patients who are, are, are 12 to 18 years of age, 
um, those pediatric patients that have sickle cell disease that are uh, high BMIs, those in the 85th percentile, um, congenital acquire, acquired heart diseases, uh, neurodevelopment disorders like cerebral palsy, and then um, those with, with asthma or respiratory, chronic respiratory diseases are also potentially eligible. So Alex, what, what you are describing then are the criteria around the emergency use authorization that the FDA has given, given to us to be able to administer these drugs, is that correct? That, that is correct, yes. Yeah. So, so by all means, uh, when evaluating patients, uh, refer to the, the EUA as, as what we learn is those EUAs can change and, and they can update and, and what I say today may not be the same case for tomorrow. They may uh, open that up for new, new patients. So in an EUA then, Alex, just to clarify for those listening, we're, we're held to those criteria rather stringently, aren't we? And, and to go outside of those criteria is, is to be strictly um, uh, forbidden, if you will. Is that, is that a fair way to describe an EUA? That, I, I would agree to, to that. Uh, obviously, again, these, these are exper experimental drugs. Uh, this is not a full FDA approval for these medications. There are strict criteria for those patients who, who are eligible. And, and not only that, too, the, the patients have to be aware that, that this medication is experimental. Uh, there's really no other medications that are, that are available, and, and they're also um, given a, a fact sheet and information sheet so that they can make a, a good judgment whether or not they want to proceed with these, these experimental treatments. If we do go outside of that, yeah, we do risk uh, FDA audits and, and really shutting down a um, you know, potential future patient. So for the worried well who, who, who do have COVID, and, and perhaps that's not being fair to them, but for the worried well who do have COVID, uh, this doesn't, they, they, they should not view this as uh, available to them. For those low-risk uh, patients, no, th this is not, not appropriate for those patients. This, again, really those high-risk patients that, that we worry uh, will develop and, and require hospitalization. The, the intention of this, keep, keep those patients out of the hospital. So you hinted at this, Alex, that this is not, not an FDA-approved product. And would you mind just, just telling us to date, and, and, and this is uh, the week of December the First November the thirtieth week to date, how many have we have we treated um, roughly across the system? Uh, Julie, I'm gonna pass the ball to you. I think you have that number. Yeah, across our system, um, we have treated close to 130 patients as of this morning. And so the great thing about that is um, one thing about this emergency use authorization um, approvals and the process for providers to know how to refer patients to us at Baptist to do that, I think something that was important to us is that it's accessible to as many patients and as many communities as we can. Um, we would never want it to be something that um, only those that um, knew about the referral process or, or knew a physician could have access to. So of our 130 patients, it's a very um, diverse um, um, segment all across our system. Um, I could see that we've administered um, for patients at Calhoun, Boonville, 
Union County, Atala, Union City, as well as our metro areas like Memphis and Mississippi Baptist. And so it's being um, well, well communicated, well received, um, and hopefully helping a lot of patients out there. So we've administered it to over 100 patients. Uh, we have inventory of these products at all of our Baptist facilities, um, particularly the BAM Lenivimab, since it was approved earlier. Um, but combined of the two products, we have close to um, what's well, over 300 um, doses available, and we are hopeful that our allocations will continue and we can continue to build on that inventory. Let me ask you a question then, Jillian and, and Alex, about that allocation. Are there rules around this, distribu this distributing to us uh, our allocated supplies, and what, what are those? Well, I, I think first state? off, one of the interesting things is that for both products, the, the federal government had purchased 300,000 uh, doses to, to be distributed across the country of both products, 300,000 of both products. And, and so they do determine based off of our uh, COVID positivity uh, admission rates uh, of what our allocated amounts are. And Dylan, uh, do you have anything about the inter moving those products between hospitals? Um, no, other than the State Department's, um, we've asked them a couple of questions about if we got in a situation where we would need to move um, the inventory. They seem very open and flexible about that. We would need to communicate to them um, so they would know about that. But I, I think that would be something we, we could do if we needed to. Can I ask you a question or two then about what's been our experience to date? Side effects or any issues or concerns that have come up, and 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 a, perhaps a, a, along those same lines, what are the what are, are the scenarios or the situations or the where are we administering the infusions? Okay, great, great, great questions there. So. Uh, with this, it, it, again, it's an outpatient infusion, so administered in an outpatient infusion setting uh, or, or in a, an emergency department. Uh, to be aware of those potential side effects, um, that's something, again, it's, it's still kind of early in these phases, but, but the initial reports in, included in that New England Journal of Medicine really showed very well tolerated uh, side effects less than 5% of patients that uh, experience nausea, diarrhea, dizziness, headaches, vomiting, uh, itchiness. The, uh, though there is one you know, concern, again, we don't fully know the theoretical risk of, of hypersensitivity, anaphylaxis, or infusion-related reactions. You know, we have to worry about those. And, and as part of the EUA, these patients are required to be observed for one hour after their uh, initial administration of this product. So, uh, you know, the, the, the study did show 2.3% 2, 2 of patients did experience some degree of an infusion-related reaction that would be, you know, itching, flushing, potentially even up to facial swelling. All of those reactions were mild, and most of them were uh, reversed with, with a dose of diphenhydramine. So it, it, it's important within your infusion clinic that you have these rescue meds available. And, and again, these patients are observed for, for the, uh, any of those kind of infusion-related reactions. Thank you, Alex. So if I'm a physician in clinic and I have a patient that I would like to refer to one of these therapies, so I have a patient who's tested positive and is one, in one of these high-risk groups and I would like to refer them, what do I need to do in order to refer that patient? 
And do I need to specify which drug the patient needs to receive, or are these interchangeable? So I'll, I'll start with the, the interchangeability of these products. Uh, really, the, the inclusion criteria for both products is, is the same. I mean, it, it's the same high-risk patients, those that are hospitalized those that are not hospitalized with a positive of COVID testing. Uh, we, we just don't have enough clinical data to really support whether or not they're going to be interchangeable at this time. Um, but I, I, clinicians could, at least in the Memphis metro market, could refer patients who may be eligible to our uh, Tipton ID infusion clinic that's actually on the Memphis campus as part of the, the Threlkeld Omer clinic here. And, uh, and, and those physicians can, can help to work to make them uh, treated for this. Uh, the, one of the phone numbers I have is 901-685-3490. And uh, I'm going to pass the ball to Jillian for some of our uh, external out of the Memphis metro area referrals. Yeah, and so all of our Baptist communities and, and Baptist entities established um, a place and a process that they would be able to offer these outpatient monoclonal antibodies. Some of them have set up their area um, somewhere in their emergency department. Some have an outpatient infusion area. And so all of those Baptist entities are trying to communicate and get the word out to their community providers that may need to refer. Um, some of them, I think, have developed some marketing flyers and used those, and we're trying to circulate those to all of our entities that might equip them with the information they needed to share with their community providers. But certainly, a provider could reach out to their Baptist entity for more information. Thank you. And so the, the actual physical infusions, are, are these being done at each individual clinic or is it being done at the hospital or emergency department? Where are patients getting these infusions? Each of the hospitals have designated an area. Um, some of those, it was an infusion center or an infusion area. Some of those have chosen um, an area maybe at the periphery of their emergency department or otherwise. Gotcha. That's helpful. And what, what sort of challenges have we had during this rollout process that we needed to overcome? Um, a lot of people have talked about just the logistical challenges of administering this, this monoclonal antibody therapy in the ambulatory setting. Have we experienced much of that? Well, I'd say yes. You, you, you nailed you nailed on on the head. the The challenge really is historically our infusion clinics have been you know, focused on, on providing care to oncology based patients, and, and obviously we we don't want to mix the two uh, patient populations in the same same area. So, dedicating a a, a clinic time, clinic space, and uh, in, in determining the, the best possible cleaning um, uh, per procedures to, to do, those those really have been just the biggest biggest challenges. Well, I know yeah. you said that we've administered it to over 100 patients, and it's only been a couple of weeks since we've really gotten going with this uh, new process. So that sounds pretty promising. Um, do either of y'all have any other closing comments for the, the the medical staff that you want them to be aware of? Uh, two two major points with this um, the the safety and efficacy for hospitalized COVID patients has not been determined at this time, so it's not recommended for those uh, that are hospitalized due to a COVID diagnosis. And then um, probably most importantly too, it it is still experimental. Patients need to be aware of that, and and they need to be 
um, provided a, a fact sheet that, that informs them of this medication and, uh, and really risk versus benefits need to, to be discussed. And all I would add was just um, one more comment about the interchangeability. Um, as Alex said, while that may not have been published or studied explicitly, um, I think because the criteria for use is the same, um, I believe that our um, providers uh, would be willing to use either product. Um, we're, we're grateful to have either product and feel that both, of course, per the FDA approval um, are, are promising for patients. And so um, as long as a provider is clear on their order, you could order both through Epic. There's a specific order under the name of each product in Epic. Um, if a pharmacy um, does not have inventory of that product, I think they will call the ordering provider and ask if they could use the other product. Um, if, if a physician is using an order, paper order form, and we're preparing um, some of those, and some of our entities already have those, um, we, it'll be a, a very clear place to um, delineate which product or maybe even signify that you would um, approve either product based on inventory. So as long as we're matching the order to the product that we are dispensing, um, I think we feel good about that and, and we just may you know, check back with the ordering provider if we had any questions. Thank you, that's very helpful. The last question I have um, that I've gotten from, from some of our clinicians is early on there was some discussion that providing non-COVID-19 positive patients, but patients in that high-risk group with these infusions could potentially help them become less vulnerable to getting the infection and being hospitalized. I know that is not part of the EUA, but do you have any, any thoughts on that, or, or are we expected to hear more about whether or not that would be uh, a possibility? You know, the idea being that it would be sort of a, a bridge to a vaccine for those high-risk patients. Yeah, that, again, that's completely outside of the EUA and, and really not recommended or, or available to do that at this time. And thankfully, the vaccine is upon us, so we're here. Yeah, one thing I don't know that we really admit, uh, discussed, again, this is just a one-time dose. Uh, it, it administered over one hour and within one hour observation period uh, afterwards. Great. Well, I would like to thank both of you for coming on the show. I know we're, we're running short on time. Um, would love to, to have both of you back again to, to give us more updates in the future. Uh, these are certainly been some, some of our more popular topics. And I'll also like to thank all the medical staff for listening to Right Care at Baptist. And I'd like to thank Hank Sullivan for providing the intro and exit music. And remember, you can find the link to the CME survey if you go to the bottom of the show notes on your podcast server. Thank you and have a great day.